In your Bible, John chapter 1, John chapter number 1 today, and find it in your Scripture, and then stand to your feet with me, if you will, as we read God's Word together. John chapter 1, and I'm going to begin the reading in verse number 10. John 1 and verse 10. He, and that's referring to Jesus Christ himself, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. What a sad statement. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. I wonder how many people have been saved through time and history with that verse right there. It's so clear, isn't it? As many as received him, he gave them power to become his sons or his daughters, his children, even to all that believe on his name, which were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh, a physical birth, nor the will of man, but of God. And then many theologians through the years have said that perhaps the single greatest verse in the New Testament is John 1 and 14. If you begin to study that verse, I mean, you can't plumb its depths. It has so much doctrine in it. It's really almost the whole Christian faith in one verse. The Word, capitalized, referring to Christ, was made flesh, born in a manger. He dwelt among us. For, thir- for three years, or 33 years, really. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And here's the phrase I want you to focus on. He's full of grace, and he's full of truth. Full of grace and full of truth. That's our Savior. Full of grace and full of truth. Thank you. You may be seated. What is grace? Well, you know that grace is God's unmerited favor. We know that God's grace is undeserved, and none of us deserve His favor. We know that it is unearned, that nothing, none of us have done anything that would earn God's favor to where He would be indebted to us for it. Grace is unmerited, undeserved, and unearned favor or love or mercy that Almighty God has bestowed upon mankind. But Christ is not only full of grace, He's full of truth. What is truth? Well, I've defined it many times, but you know that truth is that which conforms to reality. Truth means facts. Truth means facts that not only are stated as facts, but that they are, in fact, conforming to reality around us. And so I stand here, and I notice this beautiful spray of roses. And I would say to you, fact, those roses are red. And you would say, and that's the truth. But if I said to you, those roses are blue, you would say, that's not the truth. Your eyes deceive you. Those roses are red. What I have said in stating that they're blue does not conform to reality. Reality is pretty self-evident there, isn't it? So Jesus is full of this grace. 
this unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor that he bestows upon all of mankind. And we sing about it, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We depend upon God's grace for our salvation. Now, stop and think with me for just a moment. Here's the thing. Were it not for the grace of God, there would be no salvation. It wouldn't matter anything else after that. If God had not decided that he was going to extend his love, his mercy, his favor to mankind, if he hadn't have done that, then nothing else would have ever mattered. There would be no Christian faith. There would be no salvation. There would be no hope for any of us. So, Jesus is full of grace, and Jesus is full of truth. And those two qualities are perfectly in balance, in tension, in the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the message today is on the unsaved Christian. The unsaved Christian. Now, that's an oxymoron if there ever was one, isn't it? Because we know that a Christian is, by definition, a person who has been saved. So when you talk about an unsaved Christian, you're talking about something that really doesn't exist. But the reason I use the title or the, the term is because I want to get your attention. I want you to focus on and understand something that I think is one of the major, major problems today in Christianity across the world. I think it's a problem universally. I think it's particularly a problem in America. I think it is even more of a problem in the American South in the Bible Belt. And I think it's a problem even at the Florence Baptist Temple. So I can't get it down to any uh, more personal level than that, could I? Repentance, you see, is facing reality. Repentance is changing my mind about where I have been wrong about sin, about myself, and about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a change of mind that leads me to do an about face, a 180, and I begin to think differently about those major factors, sin, self, and Christ. Now, here's reality. Here's reality. The reality is that my greatest problem in my life is sin. You may think your greatest problem is a disease. You may think your greatest problem is financial. You might think your greatest problem is relational, your relationship with somebody. But if you believe the teachings of Scripture, the greatest problem in your life is sin. And therefore, if sin is your greatest problem, then your greatest need is Jesus Christ because he's the only one who can deal with the sin issue. And Jesus Christ is full of grace. He wants to bestow his favor, his mercy, his love upon you. But he's also full of truth. And he demands, may I say it again, Jesus Christ demands that you face the reality of your sin and yourself before you can experience his grace. Sin has separated me from God. Sin has alienated me from my creator. 
Sin has separated me from the one who loves me the greatest, who gave me life and breath, who gave me a soul and an eternal existence. Sin has completely alienated me from him, our Lord. And there's another reality I've got to face, and that is there's no cure for my disease. I have this disease, and it's 10,000 times worse than COVID. There's no vaccination going to be invented for the sin virus, I promise you that. The only cure for sin occurred 2,000 years ago when the Son of God poured out His blood upon the cross of Calvary. And other than that, there is no cure. And there's another reality about it, and that is that the wages of sin is death. It has a 100% fatality rate, more than any other disease that anybody ever could talk about or describe. So my disease is terminal. It's universal. There is no cure, no vaccination, no pill, no therapy. And it is a disease that is my greatest need. You may have cancer today, but you've got a greater need than a physical problem. You may be on the verge of bankruptcy, but you've got a far greater problem than a financial problem, and it is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, repentance then, Jesus was full of truth. Repentance is accepting God's truth about my condition. And I spoke about repentance last week, but the Bible is so full of it. And I, I I sometimes am more burdened about one subject than I am another. And what I've been observing in, as, a, as a pastor and as a Christian leader, looking not only at my own flock, but looking at the whole country today, I, I just have to believe that this whole area of people understanding repentance is, it's, it's been neglected it's been just ignored, and boy, how America and how we need to come back and remember the importance of repentance. Your Bible's open to John 1. Just flip it over to chapter 5, if you will, verse number 24. There's a verse we've often used when we talk to people about salvation. I've preached from it more than once. Verily, verily, John 5 and 24 Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And he shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. What a glorious promise here. But we go through that real quickly. We focus usually on the part that says, He that believeth on me, on him that sent me, hath everlasting life. May I ask you to back up? And look at the first part. He that heareth my word. And what does his word say? Well, his word tells us about our sinful condition. His word tells us about our need personally, ourself, that we're lost in trespasses and sins. His word tells me about a Savior. His word tells me about the gospel that gives me my hope. But you see, we just read through, he, he that heareth the word, the word confronts me with the truth of who I am and what I am. And what I've observed as a preacher is that generally speaking, 
Many, many people are in denial of their true condition. Many, many people in America today are in denial. They don't want to face the fact they have this terminal disease. And so we've minimized sin. We don't talk about sin. In many cases, we've even made sin a disease. And things that people used to view as sin, we say, well, there, there's, the reason for that is they have a certain a, a disease. And we've created a, a disease model that we work with people on. We say they have a sickness rather than that they have a, a moral failure in their life. We don't even talk like that, particularly in the secular world and increasingly in the church as well. And so Jesus had this major theme in his preaching and in his ministry that I want to show you today because Jesus did not want people to think they were saved and not be saved. Am I speaking to anyone in this building today who you think you're saved, but there's a good possibility you're not saved? Maybe you never were saved, that you've gone into life just assuming you're saved, and you might be an unsaved Christian. I'll tell you a little bit more about that term in a moment. But let me first say that Jesus Christ spent his life calling people to repentance so they would not be unsaved Christians later. And he called everyone to repentance, to change their mind about sin, about themselves, and about him, the Savior. Do you remember his first sermon? I won't ask you to turn your Bible to all these references. It'll slow us down. But it's, you, you may want to write the, the reference down there in the margin of your Bible. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, it's the first record of the preaching of Jesus. It says that Jesus came preaching, repent and believe the gospel. That's his first message. Here he is, 30 years old. He's just been baptized. He goes out into the world preaching. What is the message of the Son of God? The very first time he preaches, repent first and then believe the gospel. And then last week I chose as the text because we were there in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 13 and verse number 3. And in Luke 13 and 3, it says Jesus is speaking to people, and they're telling him about two local current events, two disasters where people were murdered by Roman soldiers and another place where the people were, uh, they were killed in an industrial construction accident. And Jesus acknowledges those accidents. But then what does he say? He says, but except you repent, you will all likewise perish. He said, people are going to die. There's going to be accidents. There's going to be violence, all these things. And the people that were killed are not any worse than the other people, the people who were standing around and survived. But Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all, A-double-L-L, that's everybody, every person who doesn't repent will perish. That's Jesus Christ warning out of his own lips. Now, in Luke chapter number 24, and you're probably right there, you can turn back one page in your Bible, Jesus is standing on the hill there in Galilee, and we refer to this as his giving the great commission. 
this is his last word that he ever spoke to his disciples. And in a moment, he's going to ascend back to heaven. His work on earth is done. What is the last words of Jesus to the disciples before he ascends? In Luke 24 and 46, and he said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ, and then he gives the gospel to them. They're saved. They know the Lord. But he's reminding them of the, of the, the importance of the gospel. It's written, Christ has to suffer to rise from the dead. And uh, he gave them this. This is six weeks after he had actually died on the cross and resurrected. And then in verse 37, he said, now here's what I want you to do. That repentance and remission of sins should be preached in my name among all nations beginning here at Jerusalem. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples is go and preach repentance. He warned us that we will perish if we don't repent. His first message, repent and believe the gospel. His last words to his disciples that repentance must be preached in all nations of the world. And in Luke chapter 19, it's another day, another circumstance, and he's talking to his disciples, and what does he say to them? The Son of Man, referring to himself, is, I didn't come into the world to call the righteous people, the saved people, the moral people, I didn't come into the world to call the righteous to repentance. I came to call sinners. I came to call sinners to repent. The message of the Lord Jesus Christ, his mission, his reason for coming to the earth was to preach repentance. He says it there, 1910. And the last thing he ever said, and he said it to us, is in Revelation chapter 3. And we turn way over there at the end of the Bible, and it's the church at Laodicea. Now, many people believe that the churches represented there, the seven churches, represent seven different periods, seven ages, if you will, of church history. And this particular passage, he's directing it in chapter 3 and 19 to the church at Laodicea. Now, the Laodicean church is the last of the seven. So it represents the church in our age, if that belief that they, these uh, churches represent the seven periods of church history is true. The Laod Laodicean church is the last church. What does Jesus say to his churches in the last days before he comes? And we go here to the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and verse 19, and what is his last word to the churches? Be zealous, therefore, and repent. The last message Jesus ever gave to his churches is a message of a call to repentance, if you will. This is the ministry of Jesus. Why did he so focus upon repentance? I believe because he knew this tendency, if you will, of people to say, well, I believe in Jesus, and therefore I guess I'm saved. And he wanted them to pull up short, to get very serious, 
to examine their heart and their life and to look down inside and say, have I changed my mind about my sin? Have I changed my mind about myself? Have I accepted the truth about what I really am? And have I changed my mind about Jesus that he is my only hope? He's the only antidote for this poisonous sin that curses through my veins. Jesus was trying to prevent the unsaved Christian. Where did I get that term? I didn't come up with that. I read a book recently. Clayton gave me a book one day, a little red book. You can read it in a couple, three hours. And it's called The Unsaved Christian. It's by a young man who went to Tallahassee, Florida a few years ago to plant a church. And he said, I remember standing on the parking lot with my friend the day we were leaving seminary. We graduated the night before. We packed our cars. I'm going to Tallahassee. He's going to Northern California. And I said to my friend, you know, you kind of make me feel guilty. I'm going down here in the Bible Belt where everybody kind of believe you're going to California you've been out there you've taken a trip you said that boy out there it's black and white I mean people out there either are Christians or they're nothing and they're antagonistic to the gospel it's just cut and dried out there I feel kind of guilty because I'm going where people for the most part are kind of nice about it and he said my friend said to me these words he said no it isn't going to be easier in California the hardest place to pastor a church in the world is the American South. Because in the American South, they've heard it and they think they're saved, and yet they don't have one single evidence in their life that they are saved. The American South is full of unsaved Christians. What is an unsaved Christian? That's a, as I said, that's a contradiction of terms, isn't it? I haven't ever called them unsaved Christians before until I read the book. I've called them cultural Christians. I've recognized the problems. I've preached a lot about the problems. People go to evangelical churches. They think they're saved. They make professions. But there's no in it. There's no relationship. It's something you do. It's like going to the grocery store. It's just stuff you have to do to get through life. And people kind of expected it until about 20 years ago. Now they don't care if you do or not. Let me describe an unsaved Christian. These are people who have been brought up around the church and Christians all their life, probably came from a Christian home. Their parents might have been truly saved people. And they're the people that when they go and you have to fill out, you're filling out the blank to go to the hospital or something, they ask you the questions, what religious preference are you? And they read, Muslim, no. Hindu, no. Buddhist, no. Christian, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. They check the box. They're Christians. Their commitment to Christ, though, is superficial. They want Jesus as a Savior, what they want is they want to get their ticket punched so they don't have to worry about going to hell. Well, I don't have to worry about it. Now, I've done whatever the prescribed requirement is. They want Jesus to be the Savior, 
They don't want him to be the Lord. Because you see, the lordship of Christ means that Jesus is in charge. Lordship means he's the boss. Lordship means that if you know that this particular thing pleases the Lord, you want to do it. And lordship means if you know something doesn't please the Lord, you don't do it. And it's not because the preacher railed about it one time in a message. It's because you really picture Jesus Christ in heaven and you picture him being disappointed and hurt and, and saddened that you don't love him enough that you would back off of that practice. It's not some legalistic requirement that you have to do because the church believes that. You want to please the Savior. That's what lordship is. Unsaved Christians identify as Christians, so they admire Jesus. But he's not central. They admire him, and then when they have a crisis, they realize, oh, I really need him now. It's more than admiration. I'm depending on him now. Their, un their understanding of God is shallow. Unsaved Christians want a God who's sort of a general, sort of a gentle grandfather-type figure who spoils them, gives them the stuff they want in life, and lets them have their own way. Unsaved Christians think that good people go to heaven. Well, do they? Not necessarily. Saved people go to heaven, not good people. Praise God, heaven's going to be full of some pretty bad characters. But they repented, and they came to the cross. Unsaved Christians pursue the God that they want. In essence, they've erected an idol in their mind. It's not a God who exists. It's the one they imagine. They've erected that idol in their mind. He's not the God of the Bible. They want the God they have underlined in their Bible. So they've been to church, and they underlined something in their Bible that described God. But you know what they didn't underline? Those parts that describe a God of holiness and righteousness and judgment and justice. They want the soft, nice God. But they don't want the holy, righteous God that is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm number 7. If I were to ask a cultural Christian about his life, here's what I would likely hear. Well, pastor, I, I know I'm saved. I think I am. I, I prayed and I asked Jesus to come into my heart. There was a man who sat in this church for many years. He's no longer here, so don't worry about who he is. I was talking to that man one day because we were talking about salvation. And here's what he said to me. I said, well, well do you know you're saved? And I got right down to cases. When, here's what he said. I know I'm saved because I prayed that prayer. I'll tell you what, preacher. I pray that prayer every night. It told me right then that guy did not have a clue about what salvation is. You don't have to get saved every night. 
You understand if you are a saved Christian, <laughs> you understand that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You don't have to go through all that every night. You get saved one time. You're born one time, and you're born again one time. I prayed, and I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I have a Bible, and I try to live by Christian morals and values now, now, preacher, I know there's a few things that I do that <laughs> I guess I shouldn't do. A little nervous laugh here. <laughs> but uh, nobody's perfect, are they, preacher? No, you won that argument. Nobody's perfect. We say grace before meals. We go to church. I'm really concerned about America. I wish the country would get back to its Christian roots. I'm real concerned about what's happening in our culture. But all in all, I think, you know, we're pretty good people, Rev. I know I have a good heart. I probably just need to work on it a little more, huh? No, you're working for it's your problem. Unsaved Christians. An unknown Puritan pastor 300 years ago had the same problem we have today, by the way. We just have more of it probably in our time. And he wrote this in the margin of his Bible, quote, What a strange kind of salvation do they desire that care not for holiness in their lives. They would be saved by Christ, and yet they would live out of Christ in a fleshly state. They would have their sins forgiven, but not that they might walk with God through eternity, but that they might practice their sins without fear of punishment. Oh, man, is that heavy. People would have their sins forgiven, but not so they could, be, they could walk with God through eternity, but that they may practice their sins without any fear of punishment, end of quote. Let me ask you a question. Are you an unsaved, an unsaved Christian? Is anybody in the building here today an unsaved Christian? Professing Christianity? Live a pretty good life? Kind of believe most of what we do, but not, not so much that it makes a big difference. Paul was writing to the Corinthian church living in one of the most immoral cities and areas of all of history, I guess. And in the 13th chapter, in the fifth verse, he's signing off and he finishes his letter, and he's so concerned about the Corinthians, just like I'm concerned about my people here. And here's what Paul writes to them. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Examine yourself. I know today that in America, if you want a crowd, you have to have flashing lights and smoke and bands and right kind of music, and everybody has, there's a cool, trendy thing you got to do, and people are going to come, and they're going to say, oh, it's a great church, it's alive. But I know too that God's Word teaches that there are going to be many who said, 
Lord, Lord, did we not walk with you? Were we not your children? And I will say unto them, I never knew you. Charles Spurgeon worried, was burdened, talked about it over and over in his sermons. I don't want any of my hearers to perish. Spurgeon seemed to have a heavy burden that he carried throughout his ministry, concerned that people would come to his church, hear him preach, come this close, have a head knowledge, but never a surrendered heart, and that they would perish. Examine yourself. For once, get serious. Eternity is going to last a long, long time to treat it with glibness and superficiality. These are serious times we live in. And this is a serious subject. Unsaved Christians. Vance Havner was a mountain preacher, old country preacher from he grew up in a town up in the mountains. I don't know where it is. It's somewhere over there around Asheville in the highest part of the Smokies. And the name of the town was Jugtown. So you know he was a country boy, don't you? But, boy, he was, an, he was a great evangelist. God used him. Early ministry, went into liberalism and denied part of the Bible. And then God got a hold of him and shook him. He became the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Charleston, South Carolina, came back home to the Lord. Boy, God used him. I heard him preach one time. And, oh, what an evangelist. What a powerful, powerful preacher. And he had a quaint mountain way of saying things that just stick in your brain. And here's what Vance said about cultural Christianity. Many professing Christians have never had a real case of salvation. They were inoculated with a mild form of the virus, and they got over it very quickly. Just like when you get the flu shot, you get a little, feel a little bad for a day or two. And he said they got inoculated with Christianity, but it was mild. They never got the real thing, and then they got over it quickly. I don't want you to be one of those. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus deals with this. Matthew 21, 32, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and here's what he says to them. John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the publicans and the harlots, the lower rungs of society, the people who were not self-righteous, the people who knew they were sinners, well, they believed, John, and when you had seen it, when you had seen the works of God in his life, you repented not afterward that you might believe. Oh, that verse has an insight there, doesn't it? You repented not that you might believe. That verse teaches that repentance is the key to believing, that until I have 
taking God's truth, his assessment of my sin and myself and my Savior, until I can look at myself in that light, it's impossible to truly believe the gospel in the way that will, will eventuate my salvation. And so the reason we have so many unsaved people, according to that verse, is because we haven't taught repentance. People haven't repented. They've accepted an intellectual, factual thing about salvation, but, but there was no repentance. Now, in the ministry of Jesus, you see something different. You see his emphasis on repentance. Now, he didn't always use the word, but he always called people to repent when he spoke. Let me give you some il illustrations here of it real quickly. First of all, in John chapter 4, right there where you are in your Bible, he went to the well in a little town, and he met a woman there. And the woman had a bad reputation. How do we know that? Because the woman was there by herself at noon, and in those days the custom was that all the women of the village would go together for their own safety and their own fellowship. They would go and draw water early in the morning and late in the evening when it was cool. And she's here at high noon. And here's a stranger, and he opens the conversation with her, and what does Jesus say to her? He said, uh, would you give me a drink? And she said, I will, and he begins a conversation with her, and then he wants to get into salvation. Now, the Bible doesn't even use the word repentance here, but it has the thing repentance all over this. And so he said to her somewhere in the conversation, I want you to go and call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right, lady, because you've had five already, and the guy you're living with right now is not your husband. And she said, whoa, that's in the margin there. Whoa, I perceive, sir, that you are a prophet. And he had brought her face to face with her sin. He had brought her to the fact that he knew, and he confronted her about her lifestyle. And then he begins to talk to her. He reveals to her, I am that Messiah that you people have been worshiping over there and didn't even know who you were. And she believed in him. And she goes back to that little village, and she begins to talk to the men and the women in the village. And the Bible says at the end of the chapter that a great number of them believed in Jesus because this woman came face to face with her sin, herself, and the Savior. And then I go to Luke chapter 15, and Jesus there has been eating with people who are sinners and down and outs and have-nots and disreputable people, people who are immoral and people who are, are crooks and thieves and so on. And the self-righteous began to come and criticize him for hanging out with these people. And he gives one parable, but it has three parts in it. And the one parable shows the work of the entire trinity in salvation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the first parable is about a lost sheep. And the shepherd goes into the wilderness. That's Jesus coming into the world because he would rescue one person that would come to him. And so we have the lost sheep. And then we have the woman she represents the Holy Spirit. And she drops a coin and it rolls into the darkness under the bureau or under the bed or under the dresser or something there in the room. 
And she lights a candle, the light, the illumination of the Holy Spirit that brings light to the soul. And she goes looking for that coin until she finds it and reminding us that the Holy Spirit illuminates and shows us our need of, of the gospel of Christ. And then the last one is about the father's role, and there's the son, raised in a wealthy home probably, it appears. And, but he's a party animal. He wants to go and party. And so he gives his life to riotous living. That's the party lifestyle. And he drinks, and he consorts with immoral people, and he's immoral. And it's, he just messes his life up. He spends all of his money. He's broke. He's far away from home. And the worst thing that could happen to a Jew, he's in a hog pen feeding the hogs. And then repentance. Word's not there, but the thing is, he came to himself. He came to himself. He saw him, his sin. He saw himself. He really saw himself. He humbled himself for the first time in his proud existence. You know what he said? I am so low. I am in such a mess. Sin has so devastated my life that I could go home to my father, and I don't deserve to be his son, but I could be one of the servants, and his servants at least sleep in a clean bed and get good food. Now, I'm eating this hog slop and living in this mud hole. Yeah, I'm going home. Change of mind. Sin, self, and Savior. And he goes home. How's he received? Jesus full of grace. A Father that will love every one of us unconditionally. And the Father, what's the Father's response? He ran. He ran to meet him, and he kissed him, and he fell on his neck. And he said, welcome home, son, and no, you're not going to be a servant. You're going to be my son just like you've always been. Forgiveness and grace poured out, but it wasn't poured out until he faced the truth. Until he faced the truth. By the way, the father didn't go down in the hog pen and try to talk him out of it. The father waited until he repented. Repentance always comes first. And then there's another one real quick. It's in John 3. You got your Bible there. Turn with me to it. Just a couple pages to the right. And Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus. And he's the exact opposite of the prodigal son, isn't he? Because he is moral and clean and self-righteous. And he is a political leader. He's on the council. He is respected. No doubt he's well off. He's got it all. But he's got this little ache in his soul. And the ache in his soul says there's something not right with God, even though I'm a religious leader. And he goes to talk to Jesus one night. And Jesus referred him to a story in the Old Testament in verse 14 of John 3. As Moses, or before that, Nicodemus had said to Jesus, well, how do I get to heaven? How do I get saved? And Jesus said, you must be born again. 
And Nicodemus is so ignorant of, of, of the truth that he says, well, how do you do that? Must I go back in my mother's body? And Jesus said, oh, no. And he referred him to a story from the Old Testament, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, the story is found in Numbers. Let me go back there, but I don't want you to. Numbers 21, verse 4, just listen. They journeyed by Mount Hor, by the way of the Red Sea, to compass the land of Edom. The soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And why did you bring us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread nor water here, and our soul loatheth this manna. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among them for their rebellion, judgment. And they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. And therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, repentance, change of mind. We've sinned, and we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he'll take the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent out of brass and put it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it will live. And Moses put the serpent of brass upon the pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And these people, realizing their sin, changed their mind about their sin, changed their mind about their self, turned to that serpent looked at it as Moses has instructed. That serpent represented evil and sin. It represented the sin that was placed upon Jesus when he was on the cross. But they didn't look to the serpent until they had seen the reality of their sin, repentance. And there was one guy that missed it. In Mark 10 and 17, we know him as the ruler, the young ruler. And he came to Jesus in Mark 10 and 17. Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Good question. Most important question a fellow could ever ask. What can I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, keep all the commandments. And Jesus goes through them there, six of them. And here is this self-righteous, arrogant, proud young man. He said, all of these I've observed from my youth up. <laughs> I've kept the law. I, I'm perfect is what he was really saying. I, I'm, I'm so moral. I don't have any problem. You, then I guess I'm going to get into heaven. I'm going to have eternal life, huh? And Jesus saw him and analyzed it. He didn't correct him. You know what he said? Okay, if you're so perfect, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come, take up your cross and follow me. Now, Jesus never told anybody else that. That's not for you. You don't need to feel guilty that you haven't sold everything you have to give it to the poor. You know what Jesus was doing? He was testing this man. He was proving to this young man, you're not really sincere. The greatest need in your life is not salvation. You're playing a game with me. 
and Jesus revealed it. And what was the man's response? Confronted now with his sins and his need. Did he repent? Uh-uh. He went away sorrowful. He cared more about his stuff than he did his soul. He was the only one. He didn't repent. And until you repent, you can't really believe. Sinclair Ferguson, the contemporary preacher, says, thinking I deserve heaven is a sure sign I have no understanding of the gospel. And the only people who will be in heaven are those who don't think they deserve it. Examine your heart. Are you a saved Christian or an unsaved Christian? You see, until you are really ready to get lost, it's hard to get saved. And Jesus today is still full of grace, still full of truth, and He loves you. He does not want you to perish, and He doesn't want you to go through life deceiving yourself. He will save you. Whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Stand with me, if you will, please, quietly, reverently, heads bowed.